Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us on The Conversation. It's Monday, October 30th. The Army Corps of Engineers recently put out a call for companies to bid on building a temporary school in Lahaina, and the bids are in. We hear more about the plan and the timetable. A top official with the Environmental Protection Agency wound up a visit to the islands to check on the work done at Lahaina and Red Hill. We'll hear her thoughts. And so far, so good. The draining of the Red Hill fuel tanks now heading into its 30-week, 3,800,000 gallons drained. We hear from the State Health Department as we wait to learn more about reports from a dozen families of machine in their drinking water. And after our state art museum was rebranded Capital Modern, we hear more about the future of the State Foundation on Culture and the Arts. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. 95 days, that's how long the Army Corps of Engineers expects it will take to build a new temporary school campus to replace King Kamehameha III Elementary, which burned in uh, Maui two months ago. The Army expects to award a contract this Friday from the bids that came in last week. It's still coming through the proposals. And we talked to Colonel Jess uh, Curry, commander of the Recovery Field Office for the Maui Welfare Response, about the process. The Army Corps is also involved in helping the Environmental Protection Agency remove hazardous material from the burnt-out areas and has a team of some 80 people assisting in the recovery effort. Here's Curry. I will say that part of the push from the Corps of Engineers and the contractors that we've been uh, discussing this with, I mean, all, all are committed to reducing that timeline as as much as can possibly be done. Certainly we want to deliver a world-class facility, a quality facility, uh, so that the students have a great place to learn and that will take some time. But as that contractor takes on this effort, the, again, the goal is to absolutely do it within 95 days, if not uh, sooner. That just seems so stunning that you could turn something around so quickly like that. It, it is a temporary facility or a temporary site, so the efforts that go into this particular construction project will be to go in and to prepare the site, to terrace the ground, uh, and to put in all the pavement and all the other foundational infrastructure, including utilities and, and those things that will support the operation of the school. And then they will bring in modulars that will be placed and connected on the school site. Uh, so it, it is a method that the, the Corps of Engineers has done in the past and in other responses. So the timeline associated with it, again, is we're very, we're very confident in that. The lifespan of this facility, though, is also part of the, the calculus and what we're putting in place. We, Although it is temporary, the intent is for this to last for the, the full duration of it as is necessary. Right now, that contractual requirement is for it to be able to be fully up to op- in full operation for at least five years. But again, that's part of what we do in this emergency response or 
but we want to be as expeditious and quick as possible so that, again, we can get students back into their seats as early as we can. Okay, but you are relying on vendors, uh, contractors, to do this. I mean, you know, as opposed to, let's say, you know, the Navy has their CB unit, right, the construction unit that is dispatched. Right, and that's correct. Uh, the, the contractor that we're looking to award this contract to as part of their requirement is to acquire and resource the modular facilities that will go on onto this location. One of the things that we've built into the, the request for proposal, we have specifications that they must meet, but we did not dictate specifically what type of modular or what, uh, you know, a completely pre-described requirement for exactly what they're to use as long as what they utilize meets the specifications which meet all you know all the all the regulatory guidance all the all the requirements um, for the department of education and and all other agencies but as long as they can meet those that's part of their what's going to what's in their proposals which again it's what does make today an exciting day because our team is going through those proposals but they are evaluating how those prospective contractors are going to achieve that uh, based on what they've found with vendors and market research. Talk about the modular units. I mean, is that from a source that you folks have used before, or is it totally up to the contractors to select uh, the supplier? So it, it is up to the contractors. It may be a source that the Corps of Engineers has used on other projects, but again, that, that is up to the contractors to determine you know, what will best fit this requirement. Again, one of the, one of the part, one part of this requirement that is important is something that we can have here on site in Maui uh, within that, within that delivery window. So, and we, we left that up to the contractors. And can you talk about the site? I'm told that it's adjacent to a campus. It is. So part of this particular site, so the Corps of Engineers didn't select this site. This was uh, provided uh, in conjunction with uh, FEMA, FEMA advisors, as well as uh, the county and state, determining that this was the the location to move forward with. Very near the you know West Maui Airport, it's an ideal site for a rapid construction project. Here, it's it is adjacent to acres that is already under development. It it, it comes with the, the proper zoning and pre pre requirements for us to be able to move quickly. It does also have the necessary utilities, so water, sewer, and, and electric uh, nearby. So that drastically reduces the, the challenge of having to bring those utilities from a long distance away. So as far as sites uh, go for these types of projects, it, it is ideal and it will play towards us uh, being able to deliver this quickly. And then what about repurposing that campus that you're you're going to construct. I mean, is that something that could be utilized later by the Department of Education? Is portables? Yeah, that is a great question. I would say that typically in these types of, you know, when we build a temporary facility, um, our mission assignment from FEMA directs the Corps of Engineers to build, and then once the need is no longer no longer required, or we've gone through the entire life cycle of what was determined as the requirement. Once that's complete, we would have the task of returning that site back to its original state. In this instance, 
there's an opportunity and on the back end of the use of this facility for FEMA to work with uh, the county and the state and Department of Education to determine what the future would be. So it's probably a long way to say that typically we don't do that, but in this particular case, I can say that it is already being discussed and FEMA and the county and state can consider those options uh, on the on the back end of this, uh, this school being utilized. That's great that you've already started that conversation. In addition to the mission assignment for the temporary elementary school, the Army Corps was also given a mission assignment from FEMA to conduct what's called phase two debris removal in upcountry Kula as well as in Lahaina. So the Corps comes in really not completely behind the EPA, but you know, we, we somewhat dovetail into each other's efforts, but they, the majority of our effort will come in behind the EPA to do the next phase of cleanup and ultimately remove all the, all the recyclable material and then also the, re- remove the, the ash and other debris that is still on the ground. Uh, so that is, that is definitely a core mission. Okay, so you'll move in there as soon as the EPA gets out? So we are already in there doing work. The EPA has been conducting their assessments as well as hazardous material removal. Uh, We have initial phase one efforts that is additional site assessments. It includes removal of additional hazardous materials and bulk asbestos if it still remains after the EPA is complete. But we also, and just like EPA, all of this is under the watchful eye of cultural monitors and observers who we have also contracted to ensure that our personnel on the ground start every day and start every action with full awareness of the cultural sensitivities that exist uh, in the ground and you know in, in at these residences and at these businesses we start there but again we we continue to do that work now once EPA is complete, then we will be able to transition to the, the next larger scale removal of debris. One of the key prerequisites for that is rights of entry uh, from the homeowners, the business owners, and the county is leading that effort now to gather those rights of entry so they will give the Corps of Engineers legal right to go onto the property and to remove that debris as part of the government program. And then will you do the same thing like you're doing with the schools, just go out for bid? We've actually already done, been doing that, so these have been working in parallel. We actually received the mission assignment for the debris mission you know, about a month before we received the mission assignment for the school. So many of those contracts and task orders have already gone out. We, we do have a, a few additional to award, but that's why if, if, you, if you're in Lahaina and you see the core for personnel working in Lahaina, that's, that's because we've already awarded uh, several contracts for that effort. And can you give us a snapshot of what type of a crew have been brought in? You know, what kinds of numbers are we talking about uh, additional support, uh, you know, to deal with a disaster like this? And I don't know, you know, if your people are all from Oahu or are they being brought in from places across the country? When the Corps of Engineers supports a recovery effort like this, we certainly utilize the local district, so the Honolulu district, but what the Corps does is brings, brings in really the best from across the entire organization to gather and to focus on providing the support that is needed to the response. So 
Myself, although I'm the commander of the recovery field office, I'm also a district commander in Rock Island, Illinois, so the Rock Island District. So they pulled me out of that command temporarily to come here to lead the recovery field office and to be the on day-to-day on the ground uh, coverage for this effort. Similarly, we right now we have about 75 or 80 personnel from the Corps, some from Honolulu District, but many others from uh, really across the, around the world that are the experts in doing these types of missions. So they all come together and, uh, and spend, spend their time here focused on achieving this. So well, right now we're at about 80. I think we could anticipate at a peak across the various missions that we are taking on um, that could be up well over 100. But uh, again, that, that will adjust throughout the time as as again, as an example with the school, the goal is to be complete with that school uh, much earlier than unfortunately we'll be able to be complete with the debris mission. So those personnel supporting that effort, when that is complete though, will be able to return, return to their homes, return to uh, back to, to their families. That was Colonel Jess Curry, commander of the Recovery Field Office for the U.S. Army Army Corps of Engineers, talking to us about the timetable for building a new temporary school campus and for the cleanup of hazardous wildfire debris in Lahaina. Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. Aloha, I'm John Zach. Each Tuesday, beginning October 10th during Morning Edition, All Things Considered and the Conversation, Hawaii residents share personal stories from their military service as part of HPR's collaboration with the StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative. The project, called Hawaii's Military Voices, is supported by Hawaii Pacific University. These veterans have a lot to say. Here's our chance to listen. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Civil Beat has a story about a shortage of workers at a key state agency. Uh, p- our politics uh, editor uh, Chad Blair joins us today. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we have a story today uh, from reporter Kevin Dayton about uh, HAIMA, the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. Right, and and you know it's boy, it's not just a shortage; it's nearly half of the positions, civil services, uh, civil service positions in HAIMA are vacant uh, 37 out of 82 that works out to about 45 46 percent pretty serious problem why is hyema having difficulties getting people well there's two main reasons one is that the hiring system uh, is very cumbersome it, it, it takes a while and the other main reason 
is that these jobs really are not very competitive uh, and you can easily get work in similar fields for nearly double the salary that you're going to make at the state. So uh, what are they doing in the meantime? Hyema has temporarily staffed some of those positions, but that's the challenge here is that many of them, many of those people have not actually gone through the civil service eventing process. And maybe even more concerning is that they have the minimum qualifications required for these positions. And, you know, the whole idea of staffing, I mean, you know, that came up, you know, in part because of what happened there in Maui and how that uh, operation um, kicked in during that disaster. Oh, I think so. I mean, while staffing problems are not unique to state jobs statewide, certainly uh, what HIEMA and the Maui Emergency Management Agency have been going through, the scrutiny that has been on those agencies in wake of the Maui wildfires has only raised all the more how serious of a public safety this issue is. I should mention one of those vacancies is actually the state hazard mitigation management officer. What does that person do? Well, that person plans for emergencies and uh, equally important, writes grants, right, to get money to fund those plans. I think another position that Kevin identified as being open is someone who actually maintains the state's emergency warning sirens, right? Remember how we didn't have sirens going off? That's for a different reason, but also the telecommunication systems. These are obviously very critical positions that really you just can't leave vacant, certainly not staffed with people without the actual required qualifications. Yeah, and and, uh, it's a concern because we want to make sure uh, that uh, the folks that are managing these disasters, uh, when they hit, uh, you know, know what they're doing, know what they're doing, and that we have adequate staff. Well, that is a concern, and and some of the people that uh, Kevin talked to, including including people that formerly worked for HIEMA, saying, uh, you know, if you don't have the right people in the job, that could uh, hamper, could actually interfere with the response uh, to the state to emergencies and not just wildfires. You know, one of the things that the wildfires revealed is how vulnerable we are to many different things. We didn't think wildfires were as big of a problem until now. I think we've all learned that. But clearly we have a long history of hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes. Uh, uh, These are very important things to be able to prepare for. And that is a main point I think that's coming out of Kevin's article today. Yeah, and uh, you know, there is that uh uh, how would you say, uh, fix, temporary fix, where they hire uh, emergency workers under 89-day contracts, right? Right. And, 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 you know, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's an 89-day hire. That is not a permanent position. Yes, you can rehire, I suppose, in some cases. Kevin did talk to DHER, that's the Department of Human Resources for the state, and um, they admit, they acknowledge that the process for hiring statewide is sluggish when i say statewide i mean state positions not private sector jobs they are aware of the problem they are working at it one of the things they may end up doing is um, and this seems likely is to ask the legislature which reconvenes gets back in business in january to for more money to fund these positions as i said earlier if you're if you're able to make you know more than twice or as nearly double what you could make working for the state why not take a job in the private sector so I think that's something that you're going to see. Can you be competitive? Can the state actually be competitive with private sector jobs? Well, when it comes to public safety, maybe we ought to make it a priority, I think is the message that is coming out from the people that Kevin talked to for this story. 
Yeah, and you know, I was just talking to uh, the communications uh, director uh, at Hayima this morning, and and you know, <laughs> about your story. Adam. Yes, Adam, Adam Weintraub, and he's been there a couple of years, but uh, he's uh, going to be leaving as well, so that's going to be a void. Yeah, a loss uh, only underscores the concern that we have here with vacancies. Yes, but thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was political editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Hawaiian newspapers have played a prominent role in Hawaii's history ever since the American Board of Foreign Missions sent over Hawaii's first printing press in 1820. It was used to give the Hawaiian language a written form and promote literacy. Soon after, several small newspapers printed in Hawaiian began to pop up. Lahaina Luna Seminary, now Lahaina Luna High School, was the original home to that first printing press and was an important institution for early Native Hawaiian scholars, writers, and public intellectuals. The first Native Hawaiian newspaper appeared in 1830. It was produced by American missionaries and used to spread Christianity. 27 years later, the first Hawaiian language newspaper dealing with important issues facing the Native Hawaiian population appeared. So, for today's Backyard Quiz, what was the name of this Hawaiian newspaper uh, produced entirely by Native Hawaiians? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to UH Manoa Kennedy Theater, Pueo Gallery, and Hastings and Pleadwell. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Bishop Museum's new exhibit, Project Banaba, about the people of Banaba Island relocated in 1945 after phosphate mining made the island unlivable. Opens this Saturday, bishopmuseum.org.
The number two administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency was expected back in Washington, D.C. today after a quick visit to the islands this weekend. Janet McCabe was in Hawaii to check on the progress of the Red Hill fueling and the Maui wildfire cleanup. We talked to her after a site visit to Lahaina last week and while well en route to meet with county officials. McCabe was moved by the tremendous efforts underway. The EPA has some 270 people responding to the disaster response from all over the country. Here's McCabe. To actually see it on the ground, Catherine, is really amazing. To see the amount of effort that's going into the work here. You know, uh, we were here within two days of this devastating fire and we will be here until we're done. But to see the amount of work, the number of people, and the connection that the federal agencies, EPA and FEMA and the other agencies are making with the local residents of Lahaina and the sensitivity that everyone is bringing to this and the fact that we've brought cultural monitors, we have them with us all the time so that we make sure that we're doing this work um, in the most appropriate way has been really moving to see actually in person. And when I last talked to the incident commander as this effort was getting underway, he expressed, you know, some concern about the sheer number of lithium batteries and electric vehicle chargers that, you know, your agency was having to deal with because it, the numbers were just so great. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't even know the term power wall before uh, this particular incident. So I've been hearing about it. And in fact, we're just on our way now to visit the, the location where those batteries are being taken so that they can be stored safely until we can dispose of them properly. I think they are proving to be a challenge on these properties, but we have people who are are very well trained in finding them and handling them, and we want to make sure that we get them off of people's property so that there are not safety hazards when they come back on. I imagine, you know, if you're seeing them in huge numbers now and, you know, with the push for everybody to go with electric vehicles, that this is going to be something that we're going to have to address in our plans when you deal with disasters going forward. Well, I I think people need to um, learn about it and pay attention to it. But, of course, it's not the first time that that, that we encounter challenges with things that we use in our daily lives. Gasoline is one of the most dangerous dangerous things around. Um, and yet people every day are putting gasoline in their gas tanks and, and handling it in gas cans. And so we learn how to handle dangerous things safely. Um, and this is a, um, a new, newer technology. People are getting used to it. Um, but I have every confidence that, um, that, that society will learn how to take care of these things properly. And that when you have disasters like this, People will be trained. It's one more thing that needs to be handled properly, like asbestos is and lead and pesticides and that sort of thing. Is there anything, as as you're going to visit these places, um, I don't know, that you're struck by? The sheer beauty of Maui and Lahaina is, I've been to Hawaii before, I've never been to Maui before. It's staggeringly beautiful. The people here, the residents, what they've been through, and the, the positive attitudes that I'm seeing from people and the strong desire to get their community back together, to get it back on track, to get people out of hotels and back into their community has been very uplifting. And it's also been really wonderful. We were at the community center where, where all the agencies and the nonprofits have their tables set up and people are coming in and they need all kinds of different things. They need to get copies of their marriage licenses and they need to find out when they can go back on their property and they need unemployment insurance and they need this and they need that. And it was so well organized and just a really positive, welcoming atmosphere 
uh, there. People want to help so much and people from the community who are stepping up and volunteering. And that makes it so much better because it's so much better to be helped by your neighbors than by people who have come from far away. Is there anything that you can share with us just about the concern with some of the toxic ash, you know, getting into the environment and getting into the ocean? Yes, people are concerned about that. And there's all kinds of toxics potentially in the ash that's that's everywhere in this community. And so that's one of the reasons that EPA is trying to stabilize these properties with soil tack to help keep it from spreading either into air or water. And we're monitoring the air to to make sure that we know what's going on with the air. So um, this is something that, yes, we are concerned about, but we also know how to handle it and make sure that we minimize that kind of runoff as much as possible. From Lahaina, you are going to be returning to Oahu to look at the operations there at Red Hill with the defueling. What are you most focused on, you think? Well, I visited Red Hill probably about a year ago now, before the decision had been made to, to defuel. It's a big it's a big undertaking, and I understand from staff here at EPA that it's going very well, um, it's going as expected, and um, that it's moving along at a, at a pretty good clip. So I'm very eager to meet with folks at uh, Joint Command and in the Navy and, and my own staff at EPA to hear about how it's going. And, you know, we're still waiting on the results of the sampling tests in those dozen homes, I think, that were uh, reporting a sheen uh, in yes. the water. So I guess we've got yeah. to get to the bottom of that. Yeah. So certainly any time something like that happens, it's a concern. And uh, uh, folks were on that right away, folks from EPA and other agencies on that right away, taking samples. And, yeah, I, as far as I know, we don't have the results back yet. Okay. But as a precaution, of course, the Navy has been pro- providing bottled water for those particular households. Anything else? Uh, you know, I think one of the emerging things that's coming up is the uh, forever chemicals in our drinking water, in our landfills. But the, the PFAS? Are you yes. referring to PFAS? Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely an area of emerging concern. Actually, it's kind of emerged by now, right? But it's one of the These are some of the newer chemicals that we're concerned about. A couple of years ago, at the beginning of the Biden administration, Administrator Regan adopted a PFAS roadmap at EPA that contains a whole series of different actions that EPA is taking, ranging from research projects to regulatory issues to working with industry. Now, through the infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act, we have funds from Congress that we can put into the hands of local governments and companies that manage water supplies to identify, test for, treat PFAS in water. So it, it, is, a, it is a real concern because this, these are chemicals that have been shown to have adverse health impacts on human health. It is lots and lots of places in our environment. And as you say, those chemicals don't break down, which is why they're called forever chemicals. So we are all hands on deck working on that and making a lot of progress. I'm just all focused on Lahaina right now. And like I said, I'm, I'm blown away by the professionalism. Not that I'm surprised that EPA 
emergency responders would would be uh, professional and and incredibly technically competent in doing this work. Uh, but to see the whole operation and to see before everybody, all the crews went off to work today, they gather in the morning to kind of get their day started. They start with a pule from one of the our cultural monitors, which brings everybody together and brings them into the right spirit to help this community get back on its feet. That That is what I will take away from this trip. And that was Janet McCabe talking to us about EPA's work on Maui. She expressed her confidence in the governor's ability to meet the demands of the cleanup on Maui and to monitor the Red Hill defueling. Uh, so far, uh, some 38 million gallons of fuel has been drained from the tanks. Uh, there was more than 100 million gallons stored in the underground fuel tanks. Kathleen Ho, the state's deputy health director, was among the officials keeping a watchful eye on both Lahaina and Red Hill. Uh, when we did the interviews, we were still awaiting on the uh, water sampling results taken from a half a dozen homes reporting a sheen in their tap water uh, when the defueling process began two weeks ago. And just before uh, our newscast today, uh, we were told that those results are in and that they showed no exceed- exceedances of uh, hydrocarbons of fuel uh, in the water, and we will hope to find out more. But here's Ho. We learned of 12 uh, water quality complaints from the Navy water system, and at that time, DOH immediately acted in coordination with EPA. So we contacted six of the complainants who uh, gave us five of the six gave us permission to conduct an on site inspection. That night, the Department of Health staff went out to those five homes and did an inspection. At that time, they did not observe any sheens or odors in their drinking water from any of the households. We also directed the Navy to test the Wayaba shaft, which is the drinking water source for those homes. Uh, the Navy reported that night that they did so and that they did a rapid screening test, which did not detect petroleum. But we, but we had also directed the Navy to collect water samples from the shaft. And uh, those are the samples that the Navy has related to me that it's um, expecting the test results back any day now. You know, the last time that that shaft was tested was in July and there was no petroleum that was detected. Okay, and as far as the neighborhoods where these complaints were cropping up, I was told it was, I don't know, Earhart Village, Hickam, and Pearl City Peninsula, but did any additional cases come in since the original queries? I have not heard of any other complaints. Is there a plan? You mentioned that you talked to uh, Admiral Barnett. If it's positive or negative, or do, do you test for something else? So what we've asked them to do was uh, to investigate their premise plumbing. So what that means is to test, to determine things like when the last time the hot water heater was replaced or drained, check the plumbing. So we're asking them to do that. I understand that they're in discussions with the property manager to do all of those investigations. Was this one of the scenarios as you folks were going back and forth, you know, with the EPA and the Joint Task Force Red Hill on things that could happen? 
We've not discussed the premise plumbing issue, but that was something that we had discussed early on in in the crisis, which resulted in the long-term monitoring plan. What was discussed and what was exercised is if there was a release into the aquifer, what they would do. In this case, uh, it may not be related to the defueling because if it were coming from the Wyava shaft, it would be more of a system-wide complaint. But what we were seeing in these 12 complaints were different parts of the system had one or two complaints. So you're just trying to pin it down. Correct. It looks like with the daily dashboard that the task force is updating that they're moving along in a fairly good clip. Have you gotten any update? Have they drained all the diesel? Are they working on the jet fuel now? Our staff is on site daily, and we are in communication with JTF daily. DOH is committed to our three priorities, that is defueling, closure, and aquifer remediation. So, so far things are have been going fairly well, but it's a day-to-day process and we will continue to watch JTF closely. Have they indicated, though, whether they've drained all the diesel out? I am not aware of uh, what fuel has been completely defueled. That's what they were probably going to do first, but, you know, I just don't know if that plan changed. As far as I'm aware of, they are still on plan in the sequence in which they uh, set forth in their plan. Anything else that you can share with us just on the, the Red Hill piece? We coordinate with EPA daily. EPA is on site as well at uh, Red Hill. I can say that uh, DOH and Joint Task Force is um, doing an informational briefing on November 2nd to, to the legislature. And so far, it's knock on wood. It's been doing well. I heard that you were also on Maui. Uh, Anything you want to say about that situation over there? One of the plans is to create a landfill or final resting place with Memorial at Oluwalu. We spoke with some of the Kula residents and heard their concerns about the ash. We have brought their concerns to the Corps of Engineers who is doing the removal and we will continue to advocate for the safety of the people um, who live in and around the, the burn area. I do know that it is a very big concern to keep the ash away from drains and uh, storm drains, rivers, streams, and the near shore waters. There is mitigation that's going to be in place. I also want to say the Department of Health is putting up air monitors in and around the burn area of Kula and Lahaina, and we are placing air sensors in neighborhoods as well. Okay. And people should go to, um, uh, there's a a website that can be um, linked to on our DOH website that if anybody's interested, they can. Do you know how many you're putting in? Because I know the, the, the Department of he- uh, Education had put some in, I think, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. So we had put some in um, up at all the schools, both a combination of EBAMs and um, purple air, air sensors. We have air sensors um, in the neighboring community just below um, 
just below the, the schools. We have sensors um, throughout Lahaina. I want to say we have about 50 air sensors in and around uh, currently, and we are installing more. I think we have an additional 48. Someone had called and was concerned about Manai and Bolokai, right. and we've installed um, sensors at, at the high schools there. That was Kathleen Ho, Deputy Environmental Director for the State Health Department, talking to us about the Red Hill defueling and the environmental concerns about Lahaina. Uh, Ho says it's close to doubling the number of air monitors in Maui, uh, adding some at Lanai and Molokai schools. When our listeners have comments or questions about our interviews that we air, they often uh, leave it on our talkback line or send an email to our talkback inbox. Uh, we start with a Lahaina memory. My name is Mark. I wanted to describe a story about Lahaina and give a perspective that not too many people have had. I uh, helped an age group swim team in Kailua, Oahu, do channel swims from Lanai to Maui, and we finished in Lahaina, various places depending upon the current, and I think the most memorable one for me was swimming right up to the little beach that was right in the center of town and having people standing on the railing there or the break wall uh, clapping when each of the swimmers came in and you can imagine five to seven hours in the water uh, your mouth gets pretty parched dry and kind of salty and so then we all uh, would go to Lappert's and enjoy ice cream so something that none of us will ever forget we love Lahaina and following last week's series on the invasive little ants, Sharon wrote to us, Aloha, fire ants here are just horrible. Do you know if the killing compound is only applied by helicopter, or is there a way to make it easier for the public to apply for their own property? I know it's aimed at killing the queen. I already have a yard service. However, new mounds are found all the time. Sincerely, Sharon. Thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Support for HPR comes from Leeward Theater. Eaha ia ana o mana kea weaves together mo'o lelo, dance, and music in a voyage through culture, history, and emotion this Saturday. Leeward.hawaii.edu slash theater. Compression fractures. These can be the result of a fall, and conditions like osteoporosis can increase your risk. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the best way to avoid chronic pain and disability from this fracture of the spine. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana. Since 1929, providing fresh water to Oahu with ideas to help reduce water waste. Information booklet at protectoahuwater.org.
it's time to issue the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier, we asked you for the name of the first newspaper crea- created entirely by Native Hawaiians. Although newspapers have been printing on the island since uh, 1834, most were produced by American missionaries with the religious agenda. It wasn't until 1861 that the Kohoku Pika, or the Star of the Pacific, was born, which was the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. It challenged the prevailing idea of colonialism, that Native Hawaiians were uncivilized. Among its editors and supporters was a notable member of Hawaiian royalty, King David Kalakaua. A prominent and well-liked member of the newsroom, Kalakaua soon received the nickname Editor King. Kohoku influenced several newspapers to come and covered a wide array of topics ranging from the decline of Native Hawaiian populations to issues of Hawaiian land usage. That's today's quiz. We didn't have any winners today, but if you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Capital Modern. The rebrand of the Hawaii State Art Museum sparked a firestone recently. It was one of the things that uh, Karen Ewald instituted as head of the State Foundation on Culture and the Arts. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio takes a closer look at whether, uh, what other changes are in store. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you chatted with Karen. Uh, so what's her vision? She has a lot of visions, and as you stated, she one of her biggest shakeups at the museum was to rebrand to Capital Modern, although it's still legally known as High Sam. If they want mm-hmm. to change the name, they would have to go before the legislature. But she has a big vision, and this vision is coming at a time when uh, the strategic plan is going to be in play, where the public can actually... Um, get their input in by next year. And this is going to be the blueprint of how the state foundation, the state agency of culture and arts, and the museum itself is going to move forward for the next five years. And one of the things that Karen wants to do is raise public awareness, public awareness as to the general public, including the legislature or the art community, as to what is High Sam or what is Capital Modern. Because when you think of a museum, you think of just a place to hang artwork or just a place to go to, but they have all these vital programs that a lot of folks know about, including the Arts and Public Places program. That's what we're all familiar with. You see at these um, airports, these government buildings, or maybe like sculptures out in the public, but this is something that I didn't know and I thought was interesting talking to Karen. I didn't know that they had so much artwork. They have more than 7,000 pieces of artwork that's distributed across the state. And one of the things that um, Karen was saying is that, you know, some folks were saying that these public artworks were actually stored in the museum. And she says not that's not necessarily true. I do know that there was a legislation that was introduced earlier this year that would have made more of the public artwork go into private places that was introduced by Representative Adrian Tam. But that bill was vetoed by the governor earlier this year in the session. And so what Karen wants people to know is that the museum doesn't store the artwork in storage. Right, in warehouses, right? Yeah. Exactly. So it gets distributed to the public. There are works of art that do need conservation, right? It's like a very, very small percentage, but we do address that. So that, that's works of art that are not in rotation, right? I think it's like 11% or something like that. Really small. But the works of art... As they come, it's kind of like a library, right? As the works of art come back in from Kauai, right? We just did a recall in Kauai. 
they come back into our space. We do the registration, the prepping, and then the curator is actively going to offices that are up for rotation, It's um, which is every four years, going to every office and then seeing where whatever we have in our in our bag can go in, back out into and so we're constantly like rotating the art so i would call it more i always called it a distribution center that's what it really is and you'll yeah there will be art in the center waiting to get out but it's never stored that's a good point you know it really helps to understand it's, it sounds pretty labor intensive it is, and she says that they have a small staff who's actually doing the distribution work. I think that could be a story later on to actually see how these folks actually distribute the artwork across the state. And not only that, for example, for Koi, they're having artwork coming back to the museum from Koi so they can you know, make sure that the art piece is okay. And it doesn't mean that art piece that came back from Koi is going to go back. It might shift to Maui or it might shift to Hawaii Island. It's going to depend on who, uh, whoever now is the uh, director of the museum and the public and uh, uh, arts and public places program. And I thought it was really interesting that she said 11% of the art that's actually in storage is in conservation. Um, that's something I wanted to talk to her later on, maybe for a future story about what kind of art is in dire need of conservation. Are they from local artists, Native Hawaiian artists, and whatnot? Yeah, because we've been doing this for a while. So yeah, imagine it needs cleaning, that kind of thing. Exactly. And more to the vision. Um, when you think of Capital Modern, it's right across the street from the Capitol. I know Karen Ewald was telling me that some folks that um, don't know of High Sam or Capital Modern, they often compare it to HOMA, which are two mm -hmm. completely separate entities. HOMA, you have to pay to get in uh, with a small entry fee, but High Sam or Capital Modern is free. And what she wants to do is to make this, um, this is part of her vision, she wants to make the the museum more accessible to the public because it is kind of like this um, awkward way of getting in. You have to go in through the side because when you look at the front, there's actually no gate to get in other than the side. Um, but also she wants to make it more ADA compliant. She wants it to uh, make it more accessible to buses. But she also has this huge uh, role that she has to play. She's gonna, she oversees this more than $10 million budget and um, looking over these vital programs. And then she has a daunting task of, you know, just like other state heads or state agency heads, you have to go before the legislature to plead your case on why, how much money you, you need for this department and why you need it. Right, so she's uh, getting ready for that. And yeah, we'll see what other projects that she can get through. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you. We've been talking to HBR's Cassie Ordonio about the Hawaii State Art Museum and its future after being rebranded to Capital Modern. That's it for us today. Tomorrow we get an update from the family of humanitarian worker Ramona Okumura, concerned about her safety in Gaza. Do you have a connection to the conflict in the Middle East? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.